Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. He is our living hope this morning, church, isn't he? Amen. Well, hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter with me. Uh, if you're new here, my name's Jonathan. I'm the student pastor here, uh, and Jeff is on his way back, so I, we have the privilege of being together this morning for our first Sunday in Advent. Uh, for some of you guys, uh, you had a different Thanksgiving this year, maybe than you've ever had before. Okay, maybe than you've ever had before. Uh, it looked different for our family too, and so I hope that you guys were able to have a good Thanksgiving, whatever that might have looked like, if you were spending it with family, if you were doing it virtually, or if you weren't spending time with family, whatever that might have looked like. But now we really make the transition pretty quick from Christmas or from Thanksgiving to Christmas, right? I mean, really in October, I was seeing car commercials for Christmas. Anybody else? Who gets a car for Christmas? Because if you get a car for Christmas, let me know. I'd love to be arranged to be at your house on Christmas morning. Mason and I, we, we're really quiet guests. We won't take up much space at all. Um, but no, we really do make a transition quick, right? I mean, it was in October when they were setting stuff up in Hobby Lobby and in Walmart for Christmas and stuff. But we really are in the Christmas season now. And it feels like it's still Thanksgiving, but we only have four Sundays left until Christmas. That's crazy. Like, where did 2020 go? <laughs> it was wild. But this morning, uh, you know, we do, we're going through a pandemic right now, COVID. I don't know if you've heard, but I'd like, to, I'd like to recommend that we might have an epidemic of early Christmas celebrations and decorations. Anybody with me on that one? I believe that Thanksgiving should be Thanksgiving, and then immediately after Thanksgiving, you can have Christmas. Not before. Not before. If you're with me, say amen this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, if you're, uh, if you're here this morning and you've got your Bibles open to 1 Peter, uh, we're starting a series that will go from now until uh, Christmas Eve service in the book of 1 Peter talking about Advent. And if you've never been here to Meadowview and you've taken, never taken part in our Advent series before, Advent is just talking about the coming of Christ our King and all that comes with his coming. So this, these next four weeks, we'll be talking about the hope the peace, the joy, and the love that Christ brings, and then ending on December 24th with our Christmas Eve service, uh, talking about the coming of Christ. And so if you have your Bibles and you're in 1 Peter, let me kind of set up the book of 1 Peter before we get started. This morning, the book of 1 Peter was more than likely written by the Apostle Peter. It says that in verse 1. There are some people that disagree that it might not actually be written by Peter. Uh, for the most part, though, people do agree that, that Peter is the original author You'll find some people that might say Paul was the author of 1 Peter, um, just based on the different types of Greek that he uses. But for the most part, this morning, we're going to assume that Peter is the author of 1 Peter. Uh, and then also, this letter was written more than likely during uh, or right after the perse persecution of the church that started with the burning of Rome. Do you guys remember this in your history class? Nero burnt Rome, and after Nero burnt Rome, he blamed it on the Christians. And so then after that happened, there was an empire-wide persecution of Christians that started at that point. And most people believe that the book of First Peter was written after that time. And a common theme throughout the book of First Peter is that, hey, endure through your trials, endure through your sufferings, all while remaining focused on Christ. So before we dive into First Peter, let me pray, and then we will talk about Advent hope. Let me pray. God, I thank you today I thank you, God, that we had this time this week to slow down and to spend time pondering all the things that we have to be thankful for. Lord, when it's 
so easy in a year like 2020 to find and talk about the bad things. Lord, how much more important is it to thank you for all things? God, for the good, we thank you. For the bad, God, may we trust you. And God, this morning, I pray that your spirit would come into this place, that you would open our eyes as we read your word, work on our hearts, bend our wills to yours, and draw us near to yourself. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. The first thing I want you to see this morning is that promises were made and promises are kept. There's not going to be any slides throughout this series, so just be okay with that. If you have your Bible, go ahead and have it because we're going to be talking a lot in First Peter. There's nothing on the screens this morning other than our hope. And so uh, in order to understand the context of our passage this morning, which is First Peter 10 through 25, we really need to go back and look at verse 3 to understand the context. So we're going to start reading in verse 3 of First Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." I don't want to get too much into verses three through nine this morning because we're going to be talking about it all throughout Advent, ending on Christmas Eve, where we'll spend our whole time on verses three through nine. But I want us to understand where we're going before we get to verse 10. And Peter, he begins his letter by encouraging his readers to praise God for the great mercy that they have received. And church, this great mercy that they have received is that God, the Father, caused Christ, the Son, to be born again into flesh, to live a perfect, sinless life, to die and to be resurrected, all so that we can be in relationship with him. That is the great mercy that Peter wants his readers to praise him for. The great mercy is that we have received Jesus, raising from the dead for us. You see, God, the creator of the universe, he took on flesh, he was born of a virgin, he lived a sinless, perfect life, he took our sin and he died a sinner's death. We ended last week talking about the death of Jesus and his resurrection. Our hope is that when Jesus died and he rose, he defeated sin and death in the grave. And now we, as followers of him, have the opportunity to be in relationship with him. He died for us, church. That is our hope. Our hope is that when Jesus died, he rose and defeated sin and death. He took our place so that we can be in right relationship with the Father. Not only did his resurrection and his death bring hope for now, but for the future. See, because the apostles, they were able to go all throughout their lives, and most of them died a martyr's death. They were able to say, hey, we have hope that our God, what he said is true. And therefore, whatever happens to us here on earth is menial. 
Whatever trials and sufferings we have here on earth, God is greater than all of them. Our hope is that Jesus died for us. You see, the end of time, which is what these believers were thinking was coming because they were suffering so much persecution, they thought they were all going to die. The end of time, church, is not something for us to fear if we're in Christ. Because if we're in Christ, we have hope that he's coming back. Amen? He's coming back. We, are no longer, we no longer have a fear of death because the work of Christ is accomplished. We are no longer bound by sin because the work of Christ is accomplished. We have no reason to fear, and instead we have a reason to hope, all because of Christ, not anything we did. Our hope is not in us, it's in Christ. You see, people who are not followers of Jesus, though, they have a dead hope. And a dead hope is anything that you place your hope into in this world. People who are not followers of Jesus may place their hope in money, may place their hope in fame or power or status. But as we're going to see this morning, all of those things fade away. And the one thing that remains is Christ. So if you're not a follower of Jesus in this morning, I ask, what are you placing your hope into? And do you know that it will fade? True hope is not money in a bank account for generations to come. True hope is not status at your workplace or more power among your coworkers. True hope is not found anywhere here on earth at all, period, end of conversation. True hope is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. As followers of Jesus, our future is certain. There's no uncertainty. Jesus is coming back. And if we are in him, we will be with him. There's no uncertainty there. The living hope, Jesus, the assurance of our future salvations is why the apostles were able to go through tremendous persecution like I've already talked about. So with all of this in mind, let's read verse 10. Verse 10 says, concerning this salvation, stop right there, the, the salvation that he's talking about is the salvation we just talked about. Him dying on the cross, the great mercy that he has for us. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, church, God spoke to the prophets. And if you look throughout the Old Testament, it's one giant story of Jesus is coming. If, if the Old Testament could be summarized and the prophets could be summarized, it would be with this statement. It would just be, hang on, God's working. A deliverer's coming. Just hang on. Your Messiah's coming. You see, our faith is not built on philosophical ideas or moralism. It's built on the prophecies of old. Our faith is built upon the prophecies of the Old Testament, prophecies which said a Messiah is coming. Our faith, church, is not built upon ideas or ethics or philosophy or moralism. It's built on Jesus. We believe that he is the Messiah, the embodiment of the Old Testament prophecies, and we believe that he did die on a cross for our sins and that he did rise again. We believe that he is coming back. You see, our faith is not built upon any of those things, philosophy, intellect, creative speculations. Our, our faith is built upon the historical fact that Jesus was born. He was God's only son, that he lived a perfect life, 
that he died a sinner's death on a hill called Golgotha in about A.D. 30. That is a historical fact. Our faith can't be recreated, but thank God it's a faith that has stood the test of time. And this morning, if you are wanting a reason to believe in Jesus, let me give you a reason to believe it stood the test of time. The Jesus that we serve is the same Jesus that was alive 2,000 years ago. And so this morning, what I want to do for this first point that promises were made and promises are kept is I want to encourage you by looking at different Old Testament prophecies and how they were fulfilled in the New Testament. Because that is the source of our hope. God is a promise maker, but he's also a promise keeper. What he says is true. And so let's look in Isaiah 7:14. It was prophesied by Isaiah that a virgin would give birth. In Isaiah 7:14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and I will call him Emmanuel. In church, we see that fulfilled in Luke 1, 35. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Promises were made. Promises were kept. We see in Micah 5.2 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphrath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. In church, we see this fulfilled in Luke 2, 4 through 7. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and lied him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. But not only did the, New Te- or the Old Testament prophets prophesy about the coming of our Messiah, they also prophesied about the way that he would die and the way that he would rise. In Isaiah 53, we see the prophecy of Jesus taking on our sin and dying. It says in verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we talked about how this fulfilled how this was fulfilled last week in the Gospel of Mark in Mark 15, 16 through 47. And I'm not gonna read that because that's way too much <laughs> this morning. But you can go back and see how this prophecy is fulfilled in Mark 15, 16 through 47. We talked about it last week. And finally, his resurrection was prophesied in Psalms 16, 10. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. And we see this fulfilled in Mark 16. Church, our God keeps his promises. Our God is a God that will do what he says he will do. 
and praise God that we have the Old Testament, that we can go back and see how he has been faithful. My old youth pastor would all the time say, God has been faithful in the past. He's faithful now. He will be faithful to us in the future. And I believe that that's ever more true today. God was faithful to his people in the past. We see that in his word. God is faithful to us now. We see that in the way that we live. And if he's faithful with those two things, why would we not trust him with the future? That's our hope. Promises were made. Promises were kept. Our future is secure. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you can rest assured that your future is secured because God said it is. If you are in Christ, your salvation is not dependent on you. It is dependent on Christ alone. And that's why verse 4 and 5 says in 1 Peter 1, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power is being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Church, God secures our future. It's not us. God secures our future. That is our hope. Our hope is not that we have to work. It's our, our hope is that God has secured it and that he keeps it in heaven for us and that we're waiting expectantly for him to come back. Our hope isn't just that Jesus came the first time in a manger, right? We love to talk about baby Jesus come Christmas time, and we should. It's a time to celebrate the coming of Jesus. But as Jesus comes the first time, we should also be encouraged and be reminded of the second time he will come. And it is not in the form of a baby. It is in a form of the Savior of the world, the creator of the universe. He comes back victorious. This morning, I hope I didn't wear you out with Old Testament prophecies and the fulfillment of those. I hope that didn't bore you. I do hope this morning that you're encouraged as you see the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's just, <laughs> there's, that's just a handful I encourage you to dig into God's word and to see them for yourself, to read them for yourself during this time of Advent. Verse 12 says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You see, the Old Testament prophets didn't get to taste Jesus but they looked hopefully knowing that God's promises would be true. That's what we've been talking about this whole time. They didn't get to see him, but they were faithful to do what God called them to do. Promises were made, promises are kept. The hope that we have secured for us in Christ is beautiful and it's so beautiful that the angels, they wish they could see it from our perspective, but they don't. How often do we take for granted our salvation? How often do we not long to look into the things of the gospel like the angels long to look for it? The angels, yes, they see it. They get to see it from an even better or a different perspective than us, but they don't get to partake in it like we do. And what Peter is saying is the angels, they want to partake in it like we do because that's how beautiful it is, but they don't. Church, I think maybe we should appreciate a little bit more our salvation this morning. Because yes, it's a hope, but also, oh my goodness. <laughs> if it doesn't make you excited to know that there's nothing that you have to do other than trust in Christ for your salvation, if that doesn't want to make you scream woo and amen, then nothing else will satisfy here on earth, I promise. 
So in light of the hope that we've received, in light of the hope that sustains us through life, through all of trials, through all of our sufferings, in light of this hope, our salvation, Jesus Christ, Peter, I believe, gives us two responses to that throughout the rest of 1 Peter chapter 1. And our first response is to the hope, to the hope that we have as holiness and reverent fear. In light of the hope that we have received, our first response is to pursue holiness and stand in reverent fear of our God. And this is in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. Let's read 13 through 16 first. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So what is therefore, therefore? It's in reference all the way back up to verses 1 through 12. Therefore is to reference us all the way back up from verses 1 through 12, and it can be summed up in this statement. Hey, in light of the hope that you have, be holy. In light of the hope that you as followers of Jesus have, be holy. Holy means to be set apart means to be different. And this is important, and if we get this out of order, it's a giant disaster, and so I want you to hear me when I say this. What God has done is the reason why we pursue holiness. What God has done is the reason why we pursue holiness. If we mess that up, then we don't get a pursuit of holiness. We get a pursuit of moralism and legalism. If what God has done does not drive us, if it does not strive and push us towards holiness, then we're not, we're, we're not pursuing holiness. We're pursuing legalism. Moralism is all about trying to be a better person, and holiness is all about worship and adoration of our God for who he is and for what he's done. And if we don't pursue holiness because of what God has done, we get moralism and legalism, and our pursuit of holiness should be done as an act of worship in response to God. In light of the hope, pursue holiness. Be holy. We're to pursue holiness with a motive of pleasing God, not man. The minute that our pursuit of holiness changes from a pursuit of pleasing God to a pursuit of pleasing man, then we get legalism. We get moralism. Our pursuit of holiness should be from a heart of pleasing God. And I think we might often confuse this. I think we as a church really kind of have, not us as a church, us as a church, yes, but the global church, the universal church, have a holiness problem. We are way, way too comfortable and cozy with the world. Way too comfortable and cozy with the world. We care not for our own pursuit of holiness because we're scared to offend someone else. We're scared to take a stand and say, no, I will not partake in that because my God is holy and therefore I am also to pursue holiness. We're scared to talk about holiness because we don't want to veer off into legalism. And we don't want to veer off into legalism. But verses 14 through 16 is clear, at least if I think it's clear. If you, if you refute that, then you can talk to me later on, but I think it's pretty clear. We are to be holy, B, 
because he is holy. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be like the world. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. To me, that doesn't sound like, a, that doesn't sound like legalism. That sounds like an imperative command that maybe we should follow. See, the apostle Peter is an apostle, so he walked with Jesus. And as such, when he says something, we can take it as doctrinal truth. If he tells us that we should be holy, then we should be holy. We should care for holiness. I'm not saying by any means that we should court ourselves off and live an isolationist mindset and, or a lifestyle and have an us versus them mentality and us Christians versus them the world mentality. That's not helpful. But I do think that maybe we should care just a little bit more for our pursuit of holiness. I talk to way too many people that care nothing for their holiness because they only care about, oh, well, Jesus has got me. You're right. Amen. <laughs> Jesus saved you. But now because Jesus saved you, pursue holiness. Be set apart. Be like him. See, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room and your life looks exactly like it did when you were first a follower of him, when you were first given that grace, if your life looks exactly the same, I think it might be appropriate to evaluate, are you truly following Christ? Because if there's no change, then maybe we could assume that we're not. And that sounds harsh, but church, this is of utmost importance. This is your life and death. And I promise you, not one person in this room would judge you. If you've been in this church for 50 years, if you've been in this church for five minutes, if you have not placed your faith into Jesus Christ and given him your entire life, then I beg you, please, today, let it be the day that you walk into the hope and then pursue holiness. Even Paul talks about the abuse of grace and lack of pursuit of holiness in Romans 6, 1 through 2. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You see, church, God saved us by the cross of Jesus. It's nothing that we do. Our pursuit of holiness does not save us. What saves us is the grace of the cross of Jesus. That's what saves us. That's our reason for hope. But then we should not continue on in sin. We should pursue holiness. And I found this interesting when I was studying verse 13, which says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We read that in English as three action verbs. Prepare, be sober-minded, and set your hope fully on the grace of God at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But in Greek, I'm not a Greek theologian. Somebody else wrote this. In Greek, there's one action verb with two participles that modify that verb. And that's important. Here's, here's the verb. I think this is great. Set your hope fully on the grace of God at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the verb. The verb is not do the work and then set your hope. The verb is set your hope and then the two other verbs, prepare your mind and be sober-minded, modify how we set our hope on Jesus Christ. That's awesome, <laughs> because that means we don't have to do the work. It's Jesus. Jesus does the work. Therefore, we set our hope on him, and then we're told 
How do we set our hope on him? And so how do we set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us on the revelation of Jesus Christ? By preparing our minds and by being sober-minded. And preparing your minds is, is sort of like this. It's like the rolling up of your sleeves. Some of you guys in the room, some of you ladies, when you do hard work, you roll your sleeves up, right? Or like when you're playing a basketball game or you're playing a football game and the jacket comes off, and you're like, oh, the jacket came off. <laughs> it's time to get to work. They're going to They're gonna go hard right? This preparing your minds is like that. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's be ready. Let's be disciplined. Prepare your mind by being disciplined. Roll your sleeves up and be ready to take a stand. And then the second way that we set our hope fully on the grace is by being sober-minded. And being sober-minded doesn't just mean avoiding drunkenness. It does mean that. But what drunkenness does is it causes you to be dull, causes you to be dull, numb to the world and the things around you. See, when you're drunk, you're dull. You don't have a clear picture of reality. So what Peter's telling us is have a clear picture of reality. Don't be dull to the things of God. Live in full mindset. Have full, clear view of Christ and his coming back. Don't be dull to the reality of God. Prepare your minds and be sober-minded. And the second part of our first response to the hope that we have received is a reverent fear. We see this in verse 17 through 21. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown for the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who were through him, our believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Conducting ourselves with fear seems counterintuitive to the Christian walk, right? We're told to live in no fear, to have no fear. But this fear that Peter is telling his, or his readers to, to live in is not a terror fear. It's a reverent awe or respect or love and adoration it's kind of like this. It's like you as a father, if you're a dad in the room, you love your kids and you want your kids to love you, but you don't want them to disrespect you, <laughs> right? I don't have kids, but I hate being disrespected. Anybody else with me in the room? Who hates being disrespected? If you don't have your hand up, you're lying, <laughs> right? <laughs> Nobody likes to be disrespected. Our God does not like being disrespected. And we should stand in reverent awe of the work that he has accomplished at the cross, it should amaze us. It should make us say, how awesome are you, God? How great are you, Lord? See, just like a father who loves his kids and doesn't want him, them to disrespect him, you, our heavenly father, wants his kids, us, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, to love him and to respect him, to conduct ourselves with fear, to stand in reverent awe of our Lord and to not be willy-nilly, with the way that we handle the things of him. As we live our lives, we should do so in reverent fear of our holy God, not a terror fear. There's nothing to fear in God if you're in him. There's no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, don't fear God because of what he can do to you. Fear God because of how amazing and awesome he is. And our second response to the, whole, or to the hope that we have received is this, it's to love God 
others. To love others. In light of the hope that we have received, love others. We see this in verses 22 through 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Church, because we have been born again, because we have received this new hope, because of the everlasting hope that we have for the future, because we've responded to the gospel, our hope, love others. Across the wall out there, there's a, a saying that says, passionately love others. It's part of our mission to love other people to Christ. Not just to love other people for the sake of loving other people, but to love other people to Christ. See, Peter calls us to love one another. It's rooted in our conversion, in, in our conversion moment. Because you were loved, now you go and love others. We were born again through the willingness of Jesus to come and die, and that's our hope. And now because of that hope, Peter wants us to love other people. Church, before we're Republicans and Democrats, before we're pro-mask or anti-mask, before we are early Christmas tree put-uppers or the right time Christmas tree put-uppers, <laughs> before any of those things, we're a family. We're a family because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore, those things, Republican, Democrat, pro-mask, anti-mask, the right time Christmas tree put-uppers, the wrong time Christmas tree put-uppers, our call to love one another is far more important than any of those stances that we can take on anything that might divide us. Far more important. Loving one another is part of our mission, so we need to be about it. We need to love others to Christ. Again, this is, this is like the holiness that we pursue. We don't pursue holiness to save us. We pursue holiness as an act of response and worship to God for who he is and what he's done for us. This loving one another is just like that. We don't love one another or love others to save us. We love one another as an act of worship and response to God for who he is and what he's done and the hope that we have received in Christ. He ends this passage of scripture by quoting Isaiah 40, and in doing so, he contrasts the weakness of our human flesh with the power of the word of God. Our loving one another will be imperfect, church. We will love one another imperfectly. We're imperfect people. But his word, the gospel, is the most beautiful, perfect picture of love that there ever was or there ever will be. If you're married in the room, maybe you think you have the most perfect picture of love. Maybe you're like, no, we don't. <laughs> the gospel is. And so our application to the church this morning is this. Pursue holiness. Stand in reverent awe of our Lord and love one another. All of this in light of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In light of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, let us pursue holiness. You see, he died and rose again, and he brought the hope of our salvation. And we as followers of him, 2,000 years later, we wait, hopefully, for his second coming. We're ready. 
like the song that we sang at the very beginning, like a bride waiting for her groom, we'll be a church ready for you. Are we hopefully waiting for his second coming church? May we be a hopeful people and will we respond to this hope by pursuing holiness, by standing in awe of our God, by loving one another. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons each